Uh, so we're in First Timothy. We went over chapter two to chapter three, verse sixteen. <clears throat> uh, we asked some questions, answered some questions. I'm going to read this section again real quick before we go into it, and then I'll give you some little things to keep in mind, like the gospel that we see through these passages, some little glimpses of it and stuff like that, any theology that may be in there. <clears throat> so let's read 1 Timothy 2, 1, we're going to stop at 360. So it says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth and I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, chapter 2. 1 Timothy, chapter 2. Verse 8 says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable, respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And I still have not found an answer for being saved through childbearing, just so you know, in case someone wants to know. Uh, chapter three, <clears throat> the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be a, above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace or into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. For he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirits, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Okay. So let's get into this. Some of the gospel glimpses we see, we see a ransom for all, right? A ransom for all. <clears throat> um, earlier, Paul declared that that um, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We've seen that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, 
he explains how Jesus secured our salvation. You know, he says, by giving himself as a ransom for all. So ransom is the price that's paid for someone's freedom, right? So Jesus' ransom was an act of substitution. The innocent God-man died in our place. Mark 10, 45 says this. It says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus didn't offer himself as a ransom under like coercion or threat or being forced into it or anything like that. He willingly sacrificed his life to save us. You know, the perfect and supreme act of service and love. Ephesians 5.2 says this, it says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So this ransom was for all, for everyone, right? Some interpreters explain that, you know, while God desires to save all individuals without exception and Jesus's death potentially atoned for all, he actually saves only the believers. Um, I think 1 Timothy 2.6 more likely is where it says, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I think it means that Jesus accomplished the salvation of every one of his people for all social classes, ethnic groups, no matter who it is, for all. It says for all, I believe it's for all. Right. First Timothy 2.1 said, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. Right. First Timothy 4.10. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So in contrast to the narrow, you know, exclusivism that we see sometimes promoted by false teachers that were promoting the same thing in Ephesus. You know, Paul stresses that Jesus saves all sorts of people. You know, he say he came to save all, not just like one tribe. It wasn't just Judah or Israel or anything like that. It was for all people, Gentiles included, right? This precious truth is what fuels our prayers and fuels us to witness to all people. Otherwise, why would we even witness to all people, you know, if we don't believe God? died for everyone you know and this includes rulers it includes the gentiles of their time it included everyone at that time roman greek it didn't matter they were preaching to everyone first timothy 2 2 was the point where it says for kings he was talking about praying for all right for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way you know, I think we definitely need to hit the knees and pray for our leaders nowadays. Things are getting crazy, so we should practice this. First uh, Timothy 2.7 says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So we see salvation for all. We also see that um, <clears throat> where it talks about being saved through childbirth. Right. God saves undeserving sinners, not because of their works, but because of his own mercy, because of his grace in Christ Jesus, right? First Timothy 1, 15 to 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Also, um, Titus 2 verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, right? Titus 3 5 says, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So I think, 1 Timothy 2.15, where it's talking about, yes, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We kind of fit into that, right? I don't think it can mean that women merit salvation 
you know, or secure God's eternal favor or anything like that through childbearing, because that tends to go against everything else we see in scripture, right? So from what I've seen, there was three common uh, interpretations of this very difficult phrase, save through childbearing. First, Paul may mean that God will preserve married women who embrace their God-given role of bearing and raising children. You know, if you compare that, usually they use 1 Timothy 5.10, where it says, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Um, the second view, 1 Timothy 2.15, may recall the messianic promise that we've seen in Genesis, which is kind of what I connected at first, you know, uh, Genesis 3.15, where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall, bru she shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This was fulfilled when Jesus was born of a woman. So we see the salvation, the savior being born of a woman, child, childbirth. That's another view. Uh, Galatians 4.4 4 is something also that they kind of use to back that up. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Um, the third view was um, back in those days in the ancient world that childbirth was very dangerous. And women often prayed for the gods to save them during childbirth. So we could see... First Timothy 2.15, you know, may promise some kind of safety for Christian women who may want to avoid childbearing due to fear of other reasons. They would no longer have that fear because they are under Christ. Um, you know, each interpretation kind of highlights the, the dignity and the importance of women's God-given capacity to bear children, right? And God's saving and preserving work for women as well as for men. So those are kind of the three views that we have for that difficult passage. All right. We also see the mystery of godliness, right? We've seen the mystery of godliness. First Timothy 3.16 explains the truth that the church must protect, right? The mystery that is hidden, you know, is God's hidden plan, which is now being revealed through Christ, which forms, you know, the basis for our faith and the way that we live, our conduct, our godliness, right? Paul explains that this mystery um, with like a poetic summary, really, of, of Christ's work from both an earthly and a heavenly perspective. First Timothy 3.16, we kind of see that. The first two lines, um, they highlight Christ's incarnation and his resurrection, right? He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit you know the next two lines after that refer to the proclamation of what christ's work to the angels and to the nations where it says he was seen by angels right proclaimed among the nations you know the final couple um stress the acknowledgement of christ's work as the nations believed the gospel on earth and jesus was taken up in heaven you know in the glory at his ascension. Um, Acts 1, 11 says, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, right? So these precious truths are foundational for the church's identity, for our health and for our mission. Right? These are the truths that we need to hold on to. Excuse me. Also through these um, verses that we read, we can connect some other things throughout the whole of scripture. So we see an emphasis on one God. There is one God. First Timothy 2.5, it said, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This summarizes the foundational Old Testament confession that we see, you know, in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
right? While the nations tended to worship an abundance of gods, numerous gods, right? <laughs> there was one true God that revealed himself to Israel and called for their total allegiance and love. Deuteronomy 6 verses 5 to 9 says this. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All right, so some of the Jews in Paul's day and probably even the false teachers in Ephesus, you know, took our God in an exclusive sense. You know, he is Israel's God only is kind of how they were looking at it. You know, that's why it's so much confusion and fighting going on about the Gentiles being added in. And a lot of the Jews just rejected that completely because they thought God was only their God. But there is only one God, but he is the God of all the nations. Right. In contrast, Paul insists that he must proclaim the good news about the one God, the one mediator, you know, Jesus Christ to all people, including the Gentiles. We've seen that in 1 Timothy 2.7. It says, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Right. The Old Testament also contains some hints that that someday all of the nations will come to know and worship this one true God, the one God, the Lord of all. We see it in Genesis 12, 3. Genesis 12, 3, it says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see inclusion of everyone. Isaiah 2, verse 2, Isaiah 2, 2 says, it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. All the nations shall flow to it. Amos and Amos 9, verse 12, also we see, it says this, it says that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Right, Zechariah uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Zechariah 2, 11 says, Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in their midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. <clears throat> we see um, Adam and Eve connecting, right? Paul, Paul prohibits women from publicly teaching scripture or doctrine or exercising authority over men when the church gathers together. You know, we've seen that in 1 Timothy 2.12 where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Paul is grounding um, these instructions and principles from Genesis 2 and 3, so chapters 2 to 3. Um, we won't read it all because it might take up a lot of time. But first, you know, women should not teach men in the church, he's saying, because of the order of creation. He was saying, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, right? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So this is referring back to Genesis um, 2, verse 7. It says, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And then verse 18 says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So that male headship is kind of rooted in God's creative designs. You know, it's not, not in tradition or cultural fashions or anything like that. Uh, First Corinthians 11 verses 8 to 9 say for man was not made from woman but woman from man neither was man created for woman but woman for man 
<clears throat> Second, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, as what Paul stated in verse uh, 14, chapter 2, 1 Timothy 2, 14. He said, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He was referring back to Genesis um, 3, verse 13, where it says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate, right? This is what he's referring to. In other places, uh, Paul highlights these effects of Adam's willful disobedience as well, right? Romans 5, 12 to 18. Romans 5, 12 to 18, it says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. <coughs> Excuse me. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. He says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he focuses on, on Eve's being deceived in, in 1 Timothy, right, chapter 2. The fall that, that inverts the intended authority, you know, the order that God had created for authority. The man was to obey God. He was to lead the woman. You know, but in Genesis chapter three, we see the serpent deceiving the woman and then the man listens to her instead of him leading her, she leads him and he disregards God's commands. So that's Paul's main point in 1 Timothy 2.12, I believe, is that, that men should reflect God's design by bearing responsibility for teaching and exercising authority, you know, over others. Not to say that, you know, women can't teach because we see apostles and prophets and stuff and women speaking for God's words. But he's just trying to get them back to God's original plan as the husband leading the wife, not the wife going crazy and doing whatever kind of deal in church anyway. Uh, we also see a noble task. First Timothy 3 verses 1 to 13 presents... Um, one of the most extensive biblical summaries of the qualifications for church leadership, right? For the overseers in 1 Timothy 3.1, you know, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he is, he does desire a noble task. And this is almost equivalent to what we would consider an elder as well. It talks about the elder, right? 1 Timothy 5.17, where it talks about, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. We also see this in Titus. And Titus goes along with 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. These are the three that go together. And Titus 1, verses 5 to 7, it says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Acts 20, verse 17 says, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Acts 20, verse 28, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It stresses the the leader's essential activities, right, of keeping watch over the church. This is the main role of the elders and the leaders in the church is to watch over the flock, over the church, over the body of Christ. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says this, says, obey your leaders and submit to them, 
for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Right, First Peter 5 verse 2 says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, right? Paul introduces this passage, First uh, Timothy 1.3, with another trustworthy saying, right? There's a few of those that we get from Paul. He says, if anyone aspires to the office of over overseer, he desires a noble task, right? Godly men who aspire to, to this office will invest significant time and energy you know, and they're definitely going to face challenges and a lot of stress. You know, the job doesn't just come with ease. I mean, I'm sure you can ask any of the leaders in the church and they'll tell you, right? But Paul still insists that serving in church leadership is a noble task. It is a good work, right? It is above reproach. We should be above reproach. First Timothy 3.2, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, these are the characteristics of an overseer, you know, and they, they overarch into the, uh, the elder and the overseer. So they have almost the same roles, right? First Timothy 3 verses 2 to 7 illustrates, you know, what this looks like in one's personal life, in their family, and also in the dealings with people outside the church, not just within the church. So let's read it again real quick. First Timothy 3, 2 to 7. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. So here we're in the house, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace or into the snare of the devil. So the takeaway is that overseers must demonstrate maturity, integrity, and self-discipline, as well as the ability to be able to teach and care for others in the church. Outside the church as well. <clears throat> so we also see what we would consider the church, right? God's household, right? First Timothy 3 verse 15 gives us three important descriptions of the church itself. Right? It says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. So first we see God's new covenant people are the household of God. We are the church now, right? Paul doesn't mean that the church is a building, you know, rather it is a family. It is God as the authority figure who determines the order and conduct of his household. So Christ must be the head of the church. Second being the church of the living God means that the true God is the one that dwells among his redeemed people, right? Third, Paul describes the church's identity and role using temple imagery, right? The church is a pillar. The pillar was the, the poles and, and the main parts that, that uphold and display, you know, the truth of the gospel for the world to see. Just like it holds up the building, you know, we are the ones that hold up the truth of the gospel. The church is built on the foundation of Christ and on the apostolic gospel itself. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11 says this. It says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, right? Ephesians 2.20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So First uh, Timothy 3.15 portrays the church as a buttress that protects the truth. Paul writes First Timothy mainly to explain how Christians ought to behave, right? How we ought to behave with our given, you know, identity that we have in God's household, the assembly of God, our mission of proclaiming and protecting the truth and spreading the gospel among the nations. So these are some of the things we've seen in those areas. Now we're going to dig into the instructions, instructions for the church and its leadership. And we're going to see that in uh, chapter four, and it's going to go all the way through to like chapter six. So what's going on here is, um, as what we just seen right now, Paul stresses his purpose in writing. He expounded glorious truths about the mystery of godliness, right? We've seen that in 1 Timothy 3. So now in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Paul's going to warn against these threats of the false teachings that are undermining, you know, God's goodness and the goodness of God's creation, right? 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. It says this, it says, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created for everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. He then goes on to offer personal and practical instructions to Timothy who, who must persist in what he says is faithful teaching and personal piety. Right? First Timothy 4 verses 6 to 16 says this. If you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have allowed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, and by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And earlier, Paul addressed, you know, how men, women, overseers, deacons, all should act in the household of God. We've seen that in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3.13 when we was reading. Um, we can skip that. Okay. So 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So... It also goes on to talk about the widows, right? The church should honor true widows, okay? So 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 16, it says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well. 
so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And then he goes on to talk about the faithful elders and verses 17 to 25. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And that believing, <clears throat> he talks also about believing bond servants, how they should honor, right, their masters. You see that in, in uh, chapter six, verses one and two, it says, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. All right, so the big picture is that it stresses the vital importance of sound doctrine and godliness for church leaders and for various groups of believers, right? So we're going to dig in false teaching in later times. First uh, Timothy 4, 1 through 5. It relates a clear prophecy concerning false teaching in later times, right? It states that now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So the first question for tonight, it's already getting late too. What does Paul mean by later times? What do you guys think? Maybe like the time when the, like for the Lord to return to be closer. Mm, yeah. He's addressing the false teachers, right? That are coming, so. I think he may be thinking a little bit closer, but yeah, for the most part, when you talk about later times, usually it's the return of Christ. I'm sure that was like his main focus at all times. I think we are the ones that tend to forget and live like Christ ain't gonna return right now for some reason. So yeah, I think that that'll fit. I'm sure that was part of Paul's thinking, definitely. And I, I think that that um, uh, for us, that's what it means. I mean, for us, automatically, we, we think later times, last days, last times. We always think of eschatology. 
But in their mind, I think that um, in context, I think that he was talking about when he was not going to be around. Um, when he was, you know, when there was going to be a time where there was going to be no apostolic, um, you know, back then, if there was an issue, they go straight to the apostles and they resolve it. You know, it was not, there was no, it's not like right now, right? Right now we got all, I mean, there's all kinds of issues and we got to try to figure this out. You know, we have the divine word of God. We have the, we have the Holy Spirit, you know, we, we can, but yet we can have brothers and sisters who disagree, who are reading the same book. And we can't go and knock on the Apostle Paul's door and be like, hey, can you just resolve this for us right now? What did you mean by women? What did you mean by men? What did you, you know? And so uh, that what he was trying to say is when I'm not around or when when the time's going to come, you know, when 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 we're probably not going to be around. And, um, um, you know, I, I think that could have been also, uh, you know, that, that could be one of the things. And the, of course, the other is, thinking more eschatology, thinking of the end times. For us, when we, when we think the end times, we project immediately to, you know, revelation or we think like, but we are in the end times. I mean, you know, when Jesus ascended on high, you know, he inaugurated the kingdom uh, and any day could be the last day. We don't, see, that's the thing. We don't know when is the last day. So we are in, however you want to word it, the last days, the end times, uh, um, and later, the latter days, you know, um, however you want to word it, uh, um, we are in those days. Um, you know, it's clearly seen in our lives. And when, when we're gone, if the Lord tarries a little longer, it'll still be the, you know, um, it'll still be the last, the last days. Um, you know, so I, I think that he was, he was kind of advocating both things there. Good point. I didn't think about that of him thinking uh, where a time was coming where he wouldn't be there. That was something that I didn't think of. That's a pretty good point. I like it. Um, yeah, I think just from the natural reading too, you know, now this, I mean, we see this still going on today, even what was going on in their times. So, you know, he was talking about the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Uh, we can definitely see that going on a lot more nowadays. I mean, we have like Wicca who say they're Christian and they're teaching like Christians. And we see it like just a lot of crazy stuff like that. You know, the new, like new age thought and, and a lot of meditation and like spiritualism, you know, entering the church teachings of demons basically. You know, so yeah, I think he was definitely probably referring future. I think he was also probably referring to like a pretty soon future, like nothing, some maybe within their own little lifetime that was coming, telling Timothy, hey, be prepared. This is what's coming. You know, people are going to be leaving the church and all these false teachings and stuff are coming in. Yeah. And, and another note is, is, you know, like in 6.3, where it says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, Right. So you point you says doctrine and godliness, right? In the essentials, um, uh, we we if somebody's advocating, okay, so they're advocating, they're it's not they're not keeping it to themselves. So if they're advocating, they're publicizing a different doctrine, that a different Jesus, um, uh, that does not agree with the sound words, those of of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the doctrine conforming to godliness, and that's that's what I mean. Uh, and you guys have heard me many times say this, but. If, if you're not being led closer to God wherever you are, if you all you're doing is playing games and laughing and feeling good, and you're, but you're not growing in, in godliness, then you need to get out of that fellowship, whoever, wherever it is. Because the objection of the church is to get us closer to Christ, closer to God. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's what, you know, people tell me, you know, uh, should I leave my church or, should, or this or that? You know, I ask him questions. I'm like, well, are you growing? Are you, are, you know, do you know the pastor? Or I mean, do you know, or are you just dip in and out, right? I mean, they're, they're and, and I'm glad that you mentioned it earlier. Um, you, you talked about the church and you, you structured it in three parts. Uh, you said the church is the household of God. Obviously, we are the church. But then you made a point there, uh, the other two points, which was the church of the living God. And it's the, and it's the pillar and support of the truth or buttress of the truth. And and that 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 is the, the the church is not a YMCA, 
you know, uh, if, if and we we um, we we need to remember that all the time. Although you probably hear me say a bunch of things like that all the time to you guys, but it's good to remember, you know, that this is the church. Right now, we're having church. You know, right now, we, you know, we're talking about the living God. Right now, uh, we're we're building that pillar in support of the truth in our own lives. This is what it's about. Um, and um, and but if anybody advocates a different gospel. Um, we, you know, we need to be really careful with that, with our own lives. So whenever we're, for example, in the future, uh, in a year, or um, maybe in a month, in a year, whenever, what if the Lord is leading you somewhere else that you feel, and that's good, nothing wrong with that. Just make sure that they are teaching the doctrine. It's really important um, uh, because you build your life around your faith, uh, you know, so wherever you're being fed, um, you know, it, you know, it's, it can't, it's, it's not supposed to be a mammy pammy feel good feeling. Um, it's good to feel good. Of course, you don't want to feel bad when the church, but that can be the objection of the church. Uh, it's not a candy shop, um, you know, and so, um, you know, it's, it's a, you know, we're, we're there to build each other up and, you know, iron sharpens iron and it's a warfare. Uh, so it's just good to keep that in mind as you look at, as we look at this, because in these last times or latter days, however you want to word it, um, you know, it's, it's going to get a little darker and it's going to get um, a little, it's going to get a little worse, um, you know, uh, according to the end times, um, you know, unless you're, um, unless you're, unless you're optimistic about the end times and you're thinking everything's going to get better. Well, praise God. Hopefully you're right. Um, but for the most part, I think we know it's going to get a little bit worse. So yeah, go ahead, brother. Sorry, I jumped into the eschatology there, but rewind back. That's oh, good because anytime they talk about later time, which is going to go into the next question, actually. Unless anybody else got anything to add before we move on. All right. Let's move on then. So, the, this is the next question that goes in. Um, do the New Testament writers understand the last days or later times that still be future or did it already begin? Is it future or did it already begin? So keep this in mind. I'm going to read some scriptures. You guys keep that question in mind. We'll answer it after I read, you know, considering the context and everything of the scriptures that we're reading. So do the New Testament writers understand last days, later times that still be future? or did it already begin? First Timothy 4, one through five. Now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences, consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Acts 2, verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 2 Timothy 3.1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Hebrews 1.2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 1 Peter 1.20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Second Peter 3.3 3 says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So what do you guys think? Do the New Testament writers understand the last days or later times to still be future or did it already begin? I think I think that 
um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard, but I go back and forth on this myself, but I, I think that they, they had an idea that certain things had already started. Um, and because in, because it's, it's hard to, um, it, they, they, there was a lot of people already falling away from the faith. I mean, there was our, the, 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 uh, the uh, people have been apostatizing, um, you know, like, for example, in scripture, we have, and who love the people were leaving the faith for different reasons. When Jesus spoke the words of, 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 his, of his body and his blood, right? People were like, oh, dude, we can't do this. And then he's like, what, well, you want to leave too to the disciples? And like, who are we going to go to? You have words of eternal life. So there's always people who are like, no, this is too much for me. I'd rather just live my life now. And um, so I think that they understood it in present tense, but as an ongoing thing uh, and progressing into um, what it is. I mean, obviously they didn't know what was going to happen now, but I, I think they, it's kind of like us. I, I, you know, we can say it's going to get worse, but we can't really depict what worse looks like. Um, we just know that in the later times, it's just the line is only going to increase, the, the theft increase, and you know, and so forth. So maybe something like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think like for because you, you kind of see both, you know, definitely like throughout it all. I I believe that that they thought that things were definitely going to get worse all the way up through to the second coming. You know, I, I believe that the thought of Jesus's return though in their time was like, he's gonna come back within our lifetime. Before we die, he's coming back. Like he's coming back real soon. So I'm sure that was their main thought, you know, which led them to think, hey, the later times is like coming very, very soon. You know, even if it's the second coming. So I, I, I think, that as well as what their thoughts were for the most part. Um, you know, especially like you said, considering some of the false teachings that were already going on, you know, if these teachings were like allowed to continue, it would definitely get worse. It's not going to get better. That's why they're constantly attacking the false teachers and trying to put a stop to it and end to it before it would spread, you know, in the churches. So I, I think they were very expectant that these things are, are gonna happen, you know, in greater number and a greater number of people themselves would be led astray as well. So I think it was kind of like a now and yet to come kind of deal. What was that, that say? Now and yet to come, I think, right? Something like that. Not now and not yet. Yeah, yeah. Like the kingdom of God. Yeah. Now, but not not, not fully yet. 